The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and let's launch this episode with a clip. You'll see why I'm doing it this way in a bit. Listen to this beautiful piece of work. that nice? That's called Trumpeter's Lullaby. And it was written by Leroy Anderson. Toy Trumpet, which I played on the last show, was not written by Leroy Anderson. Degradation of memory is a marvelous thing. Also, apparently, it's Leroy Anderson. I have been told by the great many people who have corrected me on that flub. So, what you just heard was the trumpet piece of work by Leroy Anderson that I've always had in my head. The Toy Trumpet, however, is a nice little piece too. That was by Raymond Scott. And Raymond Scott was such a joy that I'm actually going to devote the rest of the clips in this episode to Raymond Scott so we can have a little tutorial about him. But in any case, what is this show about in terms of the subject, which is supposed to be language and linguistics? Well, you know, I want to talk about those dogs. Rico the Dog, Chaser the Dog. It's these border collies that learn lots and lots of words. And people like me are often asked, how is that not language? Doesn't that show that dogs have language? And of course, it shows that they can do quite a bit more than we might suppose. But the topic becomes, what is unique about human language as opposed to other forms of communication that various animals have? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are people who suppose that we are unnecessarily essentializing ourselves in thinking that only we communicate in a sophisticated way. The idea is that if we look at animals more closely, we can see that actually they have language too, maybe language of a different kind than what we use, but that they are communicating on some level that involves rich conceptualization, lots of topics, and that we just can't know what they're saying. Most linguists would disagree with that idea. It's fundamental to the discipline of linguistics that there's something different about human language, and that it is more sophisticated. Why do we think that? What is it that's unique about human language? Why weren't Rico and Chaser using language in the sense that I'm using it right now? Well, you know, there are four main things that we could say distinguish human language from animal communication. One of the first things is arbitrary labeling. And what I mean by that is that we don't just label things on the basis of, for example, how they sound. And so it's not only about bing, bang, boom, rough, rough, etc. There are people who've supposed that that's how language began, but that's certainly not how it's ended up. Now, there's some of that in language, and so it's not an accident that glitter and glamour and gleam all begin with GL in English. Gl has an air in English of bing 
that sort of thing. So there's sound symbolism there. Slink, slither, slime, not an accident. In English, sl means icky, snaky, disgusting sorts of things of the sort that if your kids play with it like the slime, it gets stuck on the table, etc. And then, of course, there's pow and, and fuck and words like that. But the thing is, all of that is just a glimmer, so to speak, of the whole vocabulary. What the essence of our vocabulary is, is something like forget. Now, we all know what forget means, but forget, those sounds, that doesn't sound like forgetting in any particular way. Or, of course, dog. We say dog, and if you think there's something kind of doggy about dog, well, that French people say chien, and people who speak Spanish say perro, and people who speak German say hund, and people who speak Russian say sabaka, and so on. You know, maybe to Russians, sabaka sounds like sabaka, sabaka, but, you know, it's just... It's an accident. It's a completely arbitrary label. And so there's the very basic notion that we have these arbitrary signifiers for words and concepts. Arbitrary labels. That is different from what we see with animals. So animals can communicate about things, but do they have labels in that sense? And of course, to a small extent. And so, for example, vervet monkeys have three alarm calls. One call makes them all run up a tree, and it means that a leopard is coming. One call makes them look at the sky, and it means that a hawk or some bird of prey is coming that might, you know, steal one of the babies. Then another cry is about snakes, and it makes everybody look at the ground. So that could be seen as them having three words, leopard, snake, and eagle. Okay, that's a possibility. But the thing is, we humans have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of labels like that. So we might see the very beginnings of it in those little primates, but they've just got the three. And of course, used for a very narrow range of experience. Their words, if you want to call them that, are used for brute survival, as opposed to our using words such as already or just or side, or fold. You know, that's not about the urgencies of life. That's about life. So, we have arbitrary labeling. And then also, it's about what we can do with all those labels, how they're organized. And so, we have the nestedness. For example, there's the concept of the animal. So, thing that moves around and breathes and goes to the bathroom and has sex that isn't human. Animal. Then there is the subset of animals, the ones that fly and are small and kind of get on your nerves and aren't birds. You, you would call that an insect. Okay, then there's certain kinds of insects. There's the little tiny one that buzzes in your ear and raises a bump on you when it pricks you. That, that's a mosquito. So we have that kind of nestedness. It's not just some random array of things that we apply labels to. We have a sense of organizing our world with those labels. Now, there was evidence of that with Chaser. Chaser, the Border Collie, seemed to understand to an extent that there's a difference between a toy and a ball and then that specific ball. Definitely had it to an extent. And Chaser had apparently 1,022 words. But once again, no human being could get along with just a 1,000. It's still a tiny amount compared to what it is to be a person communicating. And also, even a chaser couldn't do the other thing that we do with our arbitrary labels. And that's how we can combine them. The combinability is a crucial aspect of how human language works in terms of the labels. So it's not just a random basket of words. It's a basket of words that are kind of arranged by some professional organizer into hierarchies. And then we can combine them. So, for example, we can have look. We can have over. Then we can say overlook, and overlook means that you look over something. Only very minimally did those dogs, or do apes who can be taught to use sign language, combine in that sense. So, for example, overlook, that means that you're looking over that wall, and then notice that it doesn't usually mean that. You could say that, and you can talk about how your hotel room overlooked the parking lot or something, but really, overlook has, through metaphorical development over time, come to mainly mean to ignore, to neglect, to not perceive. And so you looked over it and you didn't see it. And we know that too, and it came from the combination of two labels and how we subconsciously interpreted that combination over time. That is something that has not been seen in any animal. They don't have labels in that sense, labels that are a combination of two things. And certainly 
not moving along via metaphor. Now, we have to be specific and empirical here. It's not that human language is completely unprecedented as living things go. It's pretty clear that human language developed gradually on the basis of capabilities that animals already had. There's still a quantum leap between what we do and what any animal does, but still you get hints. And so there are monkeys, baboons come to my mind right now, where there's evidence that they combine calls. So there's a certain amount of combinability. It can be something like alarm versus hunger, something of the kind. But this is the thing. They can only combine calls after they've uttered the first one. So if hunger is, and then alarm is, then maybe they can go, but they have to have gone first. They don't have combined symbols as something that somebody understands immediately. So it's the beginning of combining, but it's only the very beginning. And of course, they only do it so much. So the first thing about human language is that we have this massive and nested and combinable collection of arbitrary labels for things, rather than, for example, a compact assemblage of calls. That's part of what it is to really have language. Raymond Scott. Raymond Scott was a band leader and composer and also eccentric inventor. And the reason Raymond Scott is important is not only those things, but his music was used on the soundtracks of a lot of Looney Tunes because Carl Stalling, who put together the music for those cartoons, for some reason liked his Raymond Scott. And so to the extent that these days many of us would hear Raymond Scott songs and recognize them, it's because you heard them behind Bugs Bunny and Sylvester and Tweety when you were watching Saturday Morning cartoons in the 70s and 80s. And so, for example, here is something that probably most of you will recognize on some level. What is that? That's Powerhouse. That's actually a Scott song. He tended to write for a little combo, and I urge you to seek out those recordings. What I'm going to play for you on this show, though, is orchestral versions of Scott that were actually only done once on one obscure radio show, but the original parts survive and were recorded by the wonderful Bohunks back in the 90s. And we Scott fans, some of us guiltily admit that the orchestral versions are kind of better than the small ensemble versions. And so that was powerhouse, frankly, the way I think it should sound. That's played by the Bohunks. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So what else makes human language something special? Well, for linguists, we think of it as we have syntax. Now, syntax, in layman's terms, is what order you happen to put words in. That's not what we mean. What we mean is that we have a bunch of words, and then what order we put them in is actually very sophisticated. And we don't know that it's sophisticated as laymen because we are doing it subconsciously. What makes linguistics interesting is that so much of what we do is beyond the level of consciousness. But we have syntax. What do I mean by we have syntax? Well, I mean three things. Three things about how we put the words together. One is what we could roughly think of as that we can make long sentences. If we're just 
beings that have concepts if we just have the symbols? Well, the question is, do we just take two or three symbols and put them together, which is frankly what even apes do? Or do we have long things? Do we string those symbols together into long strings that, frankly, you can't imagine an ape doing? You can't imagine a parrot doing. You certainly can't imagine a a bee or some weasel-like creature doing. What we do is much more sophisticated. So, for example, I'm going to take a page from Steven Pinker here, and I'm going to use the Dr. Seuss book On Beyond Zebra that proposes this alphabet beyond Z. This isn't one of the huge classics. There was never some, you know, musicalized version that was shown on network TV or something like that. But Pinker used a bit about the nutches in his classic book, The Language Instinct. I'm just going to start from the beginning. I'm actually holding the book right now. If dogs have language, if parrots have language, if apes using sign have language, then we have to ask why they can't do this. Don't worry, I'm not going to go on too long, but this is the beginning of On Beyond Zebra, which I read to my girls all the time. Both of them can almost recite a lot of it from memory. Said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell Odell, my very young friend who is learning to spell, the A is for ape and the B is for bear, the C is for camel, the H is for hare. The M is for mouse and the R is for rat. I know all the 26 letters like that. Through to Z is for zebra. I know them all well, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell Odell. So now I know everything anyone knows from beginning to end, from the start to the close, because Z is as far as the alphabet goes. Then he almost fell flat on his face on the floor when I picked up the chalk and drew one letter more, a letter he never had dreamed of before. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. That's the first three pages of the wonderful On Beyond Zebra. Now, what's in that? What's in that is that we have not only words, symbols, that's a rose, that's an election, that's a disaster. What we have is syntax, how you put the words together. For example, when I picked up the chalk and drew one letter more, a letter he never had dreamed of before. Okay. When I picked up the chalk and I drew one letter more that he never had dreamed of before. I drew one letter more, and then we have this little intermediary that he never had dreamed of before. One sentence gets nested underneath the other one. We call that recursion in linguistics, and an awful lot of kerfuffle has occurred around it. But that is something that is much more than knowing that there is a word for ball and a word for run. Or... You can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. So, you can stop, that's like a quote-unquote sentence, if you want. So, you can stop, then the if comes. You want, the you want, it's another sentence. You can stick it under. And then, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z. Because, and then, most people stop with the Z, that's another sentence. So we call that recursion. You can do that. You could say, you can stop if you want when you can. You could make it two things. You could make it three things. You can stop if you want when you can. If you could, you can keep doing that. That's different from knowing a whole bunch of words and putting them together in order to say stupid things like there's a moon in the sky. There is syntax Even in the first three pages of On Beyond Zebra, I'm looking right here now. It's absolutely amazing. So, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell, my very young friend who was learning to spell. Well, that's a cute poetic way of putting it, but what it really could be is, my very young friend who was learning to spell said, and then you have another sentence nested underneath. That's 
what syntax is. We have something more than just stringing concepts together. Let's go to the end of this. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z, but not me. Okay, so, but most people stop with the Z, but not me. But there is nuance involved. So it could be, you can stop if you want with the Z, because most people stop with the Z and not me. That's not the same thing. And not me would be what we call the conjunctive. But not me. That's the adversative. We have syntax. It's also based on meaning. But we can put words together to indicate more sophisticated things than what we would mean if we just said, as your little kid does as you're pushing them to daycare, look, a moon. Okay, that's nice. There it is, a moon. Or look, the sun. There it is. What about the sun? And then even if somebody says, well, the sun is shining, suppose somebody says something like, most people stop with a Z, but not me. That is an additional layer of sophistication, upon which it must be said that with the apes, they can learn a bunch of signs. That's great. But it's just, you know, me eat banana, banana, me eat, want banana, banana, me want, me want, banana. Banana good, banana want. Banana me, me want banana. Sex, banana. Me want banana. Sex, fight, me fight. Banana. Sex, that's what apes say. That is what charming chimps and bonobos, that's what I mean by apes, say. That has nothing to do with what's going on in On Beyond Zebra, and it's because humans have developed something that is a quantum leap beyond what we can teach apes grudgingly, and remember, they don't sign in real life. No bands of apes have been discovered using sign language with one another. You can teach them to do it, but it's not where they really live. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another aspect of what human language is, is frankly, it's speed, and it matters. About 100 words a minute, that's about the usual. And not only do we talk that way, but even if we don't, we can handle it. The words go by very quickly. If it were really just about some words, run, eat, banana, then they would go by fairly slowly, probably. Why would they go by faster? if all we were doing was pointing to objects. But there's so much more. We're putting them together, and we're putting them together in ways that require thinking about things on a higher level than just identifying them. And that means also that human beings are programmed to process language as going by very quickly. We talk fast. If we learn a foreign language, then... The first thing we think, if we're not that good at it yet, is that they talk so fast. But then you actually realize after a while they don't talk any faster than I'm talking now. I'm told I talk too fast for a podcast, but I'm sorry. I'm not going to slow down and express myself in this way. No, sorry. I'm just going to talk. But that is how speech goes. So, for example, you can understand Sniffles. Sniffles is a, frankly, rather minor Looney Tunes character. But after a while, he was created just as, like, insufferably cute and a mouse in the late 30s. But after a while, there were some experiments where Sniffles was supposed to have a a trait. He was supposed to have a gimmick. He talked all the time and rather quickly. Let's listen to Sniffles talking in 1946 
in the cartoon called Hush My Mouse. The pun is Hush My Mouth. Here he is. For mouse knuckles. Oh, is that what you want me for? Mouse knuckles? Do you like mouse's knuckles? I don't like mouse's knuckles, but if I did, I wouldn't like tiny little knuckles like mine. I'd want great big mouse's knuckles. Do you want me to get you some great big mouse's knuckles? Now, you just shut your eyes and I'll be right back with some great big mouse's knuckles. Here he is talking, and you know, not that fast, but still, compare that to anything that we've been taught is communication among, say, parrots, or among apes signing, or with any animal, including the whales. Listen to Sniffles, and it's going by real fast, and you understand everything he's saying. That is what it is to be a human being. You know what? With Hush My Mouse, it's interesting. That cartoon was my first experience with a VCR. VCR was magic. 1981. You could record what was on TV. The first thing I recorded was whenever they were showing Looney Tunes in the afternoon, and it happened to be Hush My Mouse. And I recorded it, and I had the recording, and I rewound it, and I played it again. That was magic. Despite all of the technological marvels that we've seen since then, I will never forget how it felt to be able to control TV. And it was with Hush My Mouse. Something else. Behind Sniffles, when he's talking, there's a little tune. It's like... That little tune, they always play that behind him. That is a little song called... I'll just drop it in. It's called Singing Down the Road. That song was written by Raymond Scott. So, see, there's coherence in my madness. Also, what do I mean by syntax? I mean that you can fill in so much information that you can understand what somebody's saying even without context. For example, there was a time in Hawaii where anybody who spoke English who had not been born there spoke cranky, fragmented English. What I mean is that there were Howleys, white people who spoke English, but it was basically set up as a way to have people working unjustifiably after the slave trade had been discontinued. So on Hawaii, people were brought from you know, China, Japan, Korea, about two people from the West Indies, the Philippines. All these people were brought to, for example, you know, harvest pineapples. This happened at the end of the 1800s. So if you can't have African slavery, then you're going to have all these people brought to Hawaii on quote-unquote contracts, and they usually stayed. These people come. They don't speak English. English is nothing like their languages. So, in the 1970s, Derek Bickerton, a very interesting linguist, recorded people who had come then, and then he recorded people who came later. And what he wanted to show was the difference between people who had created a brand new real language, which is what happened, because you can't live on a non-language, and then people who had come, and because they were adults, only got so far. So, he had, for example, one person who came from the Philippines. His original language was one called Ilocano, and he, you know, he learned English enough to communicate. But the way he talked meant that you had to really know the context of what he was talking about to understand what he was saying. In other words, he wasn't using real language. His children went from what he was speaking, plus going to school every day in real English, and they created what is now called pidgin, but what it is is Hawaiian Creole English. What's spoken in Hawaii is not a pidgin. It is a Creole of the kind that I've talked about on the show before. But there were people who spoke pidgin. They're all gone now, but you could record them in the 70s. One guy said, you know what? It's funny. I've never heard the original recording, so I'm just going to do a random imitation. This is somebody from the Philippines. Good this one. Kauko, any kind this one. Philippine Island, no good. No more money. That's what he said. Now, what's good this one? What he meant was, it's better here. Good this one. Good this one. 
Now, you have to be talking to him to know what he's talking about. Kakao any kind, this one. Kakao is food. Any kind, this one. Kakao any kind, this one. He meant here you can get all kinds of food. So, kakao, he says food. Any kind, any, this one, here. Only he uses this one for here. It's random. Philippine island, no good. So, it's not good in the Philippines. No more money. There isn't any money. What he meant was... It's better here than in the Philippines. Here you can get all kinds of food, but over there, there isn't any money. No actual language is that telegraphic. This person spoke pidgin English. He spoke fluent Ilocano. He spoke pidgin English. Okay, that's not syntax. He didn't have syntax. If you have syntax, then you can say something, and within reason... A person knows exactly what you mean. We all know people who speak in a telegraphic way where you have to have some context, but it's not good this one, food any kind this one, Philippine island, no good, no more money. Nobody talks that way. So that is what we mean by syntax. It's that you can go on at great length and be understood. You can talk fast and be understood. And you don't need context to understand the basics of what's being said. And so, for example, to go back to a dog, Chaser, Rico, they understood lots and lots of words, mainly in the concept of telling them to go fetch things. But the thing is, you couldn't just talk to them. So they didn't have syntax in the sense that we have. Lots and lots of words, but you couldn't just sit there and talk to them in sentences. They wouldn't have understood that. The truth is that the Hawaiian pidgin English is a decent approximation of how a Rico or a Chaser, especially Chaser with the 1,022 words, would process language to the extent that if they had a vocal tract that could produce words, plus all sorts of other cognitive machinery that we won't get into, then what they would say, depending on whether they wanted to say anything, would be much more like the Hawaiian pidgin English than like real language, such as the Hawaiian Creole English, which unfortunately is called pidgin for folk etymological reasons, or any other human language. So syntax is hard work. It took a while, and we don't see that sophistication of language even in the smartest apes or the smartest parrot. It's very hard to imagine that whale calls is that arbitrary labels, is that syntax in the sense that we just saw, or is it articulately communicative noises that appeal to people a lot in the 1970s, etc.? What else is it that's unique about human language? Well, there's something that we call displacement. This is really important. So, for example, if I say to you, remember that time when, well, right there, you know that we're not talking about right now. We're not talking about being hungry or, you know, wanting to have sex or punch each other or anything like that. Remember that time? Well, we're going to go back to the past. That, as mundane as it seems, is really crucial to human communication being different from what dogs or apes seem to be doing it. Or imagine I say something like, I wouldn't do it if I had a hammer. I wouldn't do it if I had a hammer. So the counterfactual. In the case that is not the case that I have a hammer, I would not be doing this. We communicate that in you know, a second and a half. That's not part of animal communication. So for example, we can even try something. You mime throwing a stick and your dog wants to fetch because the dog likes to play fetch. You mime throwing a stick and the dog looks and sees that you haven't actually thrown anything. And you can imagine the dog's tongue is hanging out. He's looking up and you're thinking that the dog is saying, I would fetch the stick if you had thrown it. I would fetch the stick if you would actually throw one. But the thing is, the dog could actually be thinking, I don't see a stick to fetch for you. You didn't throw stick, as opposed to, if you threw a stick, I would get it. And this is the thing. If the dog is thinking that, if the dog has the capacity to think counterfactually in that way, it has no way of proving it. There's nothing that it could do. Even if you taught the dog 1,022 words, the dog wouldn't be able to handle would. 
You can't teach a dog what wood is. That's just too deeply nested into the grammar. So is it, I don't see a sticker? Is it, if you threw it, I would bring it back to you? The dog can't give us that. And so even if the dog is thinking it, it doesn't have that in terms of language. And I'm not aware of any ape communicating things like that. Now, there are exceptions. There are definitely indications, for example, that an ape might communicate with you about something that is not in the immediate context. I'm told that one of the chimpanzees who had been taught sign saw that one of its trainers was crying and asked why. And the trainer said, my mother died. And the chimpanzee seemed sympathetic. So the chimpanzee understood that something had happened that wasn't happening then, it would seem. So that's the beginning. But then, of course, you have to teach chimpanzees how to do this sort of thing. They don't do it in the wild, and it takes a long time for them to learn. That was an extreme and idiosyncratic case right there. So it's different with them. It's a party turn to communicate, especially on that level for them, as opposed to how spontaneously we do it. Or, for example, bees, the famous example, the bee goes back to the hive and waggles its little butt in the direction of where it found food. And so then all the other bees, the the worker bees that go get food, know in which direction to go to get the food. So that's displacement because it means that there's something over there as opposed to here. And presumably it means or quote unquote means that I found it. And so, yes, that's that's there. But a bee can't communicate anything about the time before when they found food. The bee can't communicate any particular detail about where that food is. And more to the point, the bee cannot communicate about anything else. It's only that one thing. So it's fascinating that the bees can do that. Bees in general, social insects, it's an endlessly fascinating concept. But the way they're social, interestingly, does not involve anything that we would call language in the human sense. There's only so much you can say with your butt. And so think about it. If apes could talk to one another, what would they be saying? You know, let's say that they are talking to one another in some way. What exactly is it that they're saying? Or cats. Think about cats. So as, you know, cats with those big eyes and that intense stare and the graceful movement that they evolve so that they can hunt and kill things. They're incredible killing machines. And they're just so cute. They look so sophisticated. You could swear that they have language, but that they just, you know, that they can't be bothered to produce words or that they can't. But if they could, then they would be talking to us. Gosh, they, they look more like they can talk than dogs, even though dogs, frankly, are smarter. And pigs, too. Pigs are smart that way. A pig will look you in the eye and you can see that they're thinking about con and Hegel. But the thing is with cats, if they have language, what do they seem to be saying to each other? Have you ever had two? Watch how they interact. You know, they'll roll around, they'll play. I have had two cats and, you know, watched them for many years. And the only thing that they ever, quote unquote, said to each other, the only communication they ever had was, let's play for a while in a way that prepares us for killing things to survive, except we're house cats, so we won't have to do it. But we don't know that because this is instinctual. That is all that they ever said to each other. They did not look each other in the eye and communicate other thoughts. They didn't talk to each other. At no point did I ever see them communicating in any way about something outside of the immediate context, such as themselves and a desire to play or to lay on one another. That's all they ever said. They don't have language as much as we wish they did. In any case, how about another Raymond Scott? This is a Sylvester and Tweedy cartoon. I remember being a kid and liking this little tune behind this early scene in Muzzle Tough of 1954. Here it is. Listen to the background. The house has got to be around here someplace. It's the only street left. So I always wondered, what is that? I always thought that was a cute little tune. That is Raymond Scott. It's called The Happy Farmer. Listen to a little bit of The Whole Happy Farmer. It's a cute little tune. And it sounds like a happy farmer if you're looking at him from up in the air. You'll see what I mean.
you know, everybody has taken a hit these days, and that's everybody in the media. Slate is the media. And for that reason, I need to push hard briefly here for you to consider signing up for something called Slate Plus. If you sign up for Slate Plus, you get something extra. So I'm giving you this show, but there's a little bit more that you never hear unless you sign up for Slate Plus. I do a tag, like on an old sitcom. Sometimes it's the topic of the show. Usually at this point, I just choose something else that happened to be on my mind during the few days before I recorded. And that means that you get extra show plus no ads. You don't have to listen to me or anybody else trying to sell you a bed or something like that. You just get the show and a little bit more show and not just my show, but all of Slate's wonderful podcasts. All you have to do is go to slate.com slash lexicon plus and for a nominal fee, and it is nominal, you get all that extra stuff and honestly it helps us at this point during these difficult times. And you know, I've got to tempt you with this. This time, the Slate Plus for this episode is dirty. It's very dirty. It's 1935. And if you want to hear what some people said about certain... genital issues on limited issue recordings in 1935 you have to get slate plus and i don't just mean salty this is people talking about in 1935 it's so dirty that frankly i wouldn't be comfortable including it in the body of the show because i know a lot of you have little ones listening but if you want to know what i'm talking about including what may be the first time anybody openly says shit on a recording you have to sign up for slate plus and of course this is also my first little push for nine nasty words which is my next book it's on profanity it's coming out in may but i just got the galleys they're very cute if you want to hear people talking about in 1935 loud and clear you've got to get slate plus you know there is a fourth thing that makes human language distinctive and it's becoming clear these days that this is even more important than most people thought maybe say until about 20 years ago and that is that a distinctive aspect of human communication is the basic thing of shared attention the fact that we even hearken to one another to learn information beyond very basic things having to do with survival and sex and maybe food. It's called ostensive communication. There's a really good book about this I recommend. It was the best linguistics book of its year, in my opinion. That year was either 2015 or 16. Speaking Our Mind. It's by Tom Scott Phillips. Tom spelled T-H-O-M, which I've never seen before. But Tom Scott Phillips wrote a really good book that explains why ostensive communication is central to human communication and was possibly the beginning of it. It's not just a frill. It's really something very distinctive. So the fact that, you know, I can raise an eyebrow and somebody will know that I want to say something. It might be, you know, a waiter or something, that I have something to communicate. So with animals, of course, animals can look at each other and communicate something. But the question is whether it's beyond aggression, as in, you know, step down, get off of me, or I'm going to hurt you. Or sex, as in let us have sex. That's something that you might communicate, and you better if you want the species to propagate. Or, you know, alarm calls, you know, watch out for the leopard, etc. All that stuff is very central to whether or not we're going to live to the next day. But what about beyond that? And the truth is, that this business of shared attention must be crucial or because animals have such hints of the other three things we've seen, the symbols and the syntax and even the displacement, at some point, some sorts of animals would have come up with something like human language. I mean, if you've got the capacity for symbols, if a dog can handle as many as a thousand, if you, you know, hammer them in, if there's something like syntax in other creatures, and that's been shown. Creatures putting words together in ways and not putting words together in other ways. Little bits of what you might call syntax. And if, say, a bonobo has some indication that they understand displacement, after all this time, with all three of those things, why are we the only ones who can do what I'm doing right now? It's the shared attention, the fact that we have evolved to hearken to one another in that way. And of course, you can see babies doing that from the very beginning. It must be inborn. And so, for example, cats again. God, it seems like they can talk. But notice, they don't connect 
Cats aren't looking into each other's eyes and exploring. They mind their business. And you think, well, cats aren't social. But then dogs, too. Look at dogs dealing with each other. Notice how they're more interested in each other's butts than faces. That shows that there's something different between them and us, or at least most of us. And so, for example, just subject and predicate, that. The way we talk is not to just point something out. You know, it's a little kid who says, <laughs> moon. And you're kind of thinking, that's cute, sweetie, but what about the moon? Communication is about pointing out the moon and then saying something about it. Hey, why is the moon out at 12 o'clock noon? The moon looks like cheese. The moon, you know, etc. Et why the moon? So subject and predicate. That, in a way, is the embodiment of this shared attention. You point out something to someone and then you say something about it. Why are you wasting somebody's time telling them something if it isn't going to be something new? Subject and predicate. And so, a great deal of language is all about checking one another's minds, looking into one another's heads, establishing that you are giving them new information, acknowledging what was already known. That's so much of what a language is. In English, an awful lot of that is done with intonation or with words that we're not taught the real meaning of, such as totally. So she's totally going to get here. That totally doesn't mean she's going to get here in complete fashion. She's not going to leave her left leg behind. It means you and I know that she's going to get here even though other people may think she isn't. She's totally going to get here. And then there's an ellipsis because really what you both know is despite the fact that people think that she's not going to come. That's what totally means. But we're not taught about that. But in many languages, it's more obvious. And so, for example... In Cantonese, Cantonese has lots and lots of these little particles that you hang on the ends of sentences. And if you ask somebody what one of them means, they'll say, well, you just say it. Or they'll say, well, it's just for, for emphasis. It, it, it's when you really want to say something. But, you know, there couldn't be you know, 60 particles <laughs> that all mean emphasis. What they're doing is they are modulating this shared attention. So, for example, in Cantonese, if you want to say, and she got first place, too, you know. So that's the sentence. And she got first place, too, you know. So in English, notice I said and. And, that connotes a certain attitude, like there's more that went before. And she got first place, too, you know. So then there's the two. And so in addition to something, she got first place. And then, you know. And we would be hard-pressed to say what you know means. And, you know, certain cantankerous people don't like it that we say you know so much because they assume that it has no meaning or function. But in Cantonese, the way you say, and she got first place too, you know, is, now I'm going to try to say this, and Cantonese speakers, I know I sound like, you know, a parrot or a dog or an ape, but I've got to at least try because, you know, life is short. So here's how you say, and she got first place too, you know, I'm going to render it as... So, what you need to know is that at the end of it, I said, Well, that's not a word. Tim, g, la, and wo are all little particles. And so, the tim means that you are kind of praising her, like, well, mm, first place. The g means that you're kind of pushing it. So, and she got first place too, that aspect of it. Like you're, you're poking that in, like, uh, this is my contribution. That's the g. The la means that it's current, that it's hot news. And so, and she got first place too, you know. And you can kind of feel that, you know, they're watching somebody who's on TV or it's their friend who just, you know, came in with some news or something like that. La means that. And then wo actually does mean that it's news that this is something that's brand new, that this is hot off the press, this is just in. So those four things all contribute some little bit. It's like this little recipe at the end of the sentence. And to speak Cantonese is to do that. That's because Cantonese is human language. Cantonese is founded upon this basic shared attention. And by the way, um, Vanessa Ho, you know who you are. Thank you for helping me with the Cantonese because your language is, as you know, impossible. And yet I can't help trying to screw up any language that I encounter. In any case, a little addendum about this. There's a controversy as to whether sophisticated thought requires language. There's some people who think that things, beings that can't talk have the same level of thought 
that we do. It's just that they don't express it in language. You know, it's one of those things that cats certainly look like they're thinking about Heidegger. I completely get that. I have a cat now, and goodness, she seems so sophisticated. But the thing is, if you don't have language, your thoughts can only get so far. And so, for example, how about remorse? You feel bad that you did something. You feel that there's a mark upon you because you did something. Now, if you don't have language, then an ethical code can't have been communicated to you, and so you can't have a sense that you broke it. If you don't have language, you can't think, I did something that's considered bad according to some universally embraced code of ethics. What you might think is, I love you and I made you be not nice to me. So yes, the dog has its ears back, or a cat cowers, or something like that. So you may wish you hadn't done something because your owner is angry, and so this is bad. And so you're at the level of roughly the dog in in up. But not, I did a bad thing, I'm not a good being. Remorse is impossible, or respect. So let's say that you don't have language. You respect the alpha baboon because the alpha baboon hits you or hits other people if you try to do things the alpha baboon does. So you might have respect in that sense. But what about respect as in granny helped raise such and such as kids when their mother got sick and died? Granny is one of the most generous people in our little tribe. Granny is a special person because she sings really well. So we respect granny. You can't get that across without language. The degree of displacement required to talk about things that happened in the past, the business of shared attention that would be required to talk about things that are so complicated, you have to have language for that. So that means that remorse, only very slightly. Respect, only in a brute sense. Human language is not only sophisticated, but it takes thought to a whole new level definitely allows cultural transmission, but even just thought. One is a more mentally sophisticated being, many people would argue, because we have language. It's not that beings that don't have language are not mentally sophisticated at all. It's not as if human beings are intelligent, hopelessly, unprocessably far beyond any other, in particular, mammal or maybe bird. You know, yes, crows can engage in a certain amount of problem solving. But still, this thing that we do, where we spend all day manipulating tens of thousands of words in complex ways, quickly referring to the past and the future and the hypothetical all the time, and paying attention to one another doing this in a very intense way without thinking about it, that allows a higher kind of reasoning that is certainly behind why we are destroying the planet. Now, while we're at it, I just want to share something because I love sharing with you all the stuff from my mental attic. We have to ask a question. Of course, we just have to ask, who was doing granny in that muzzle tough clip? That I gave us. Who was doing that voice? There are, you know, vocal artists who do these things. And as it happens, Sterling Archer, on one of my favorite shows, had something to say about that. Listen to him giving a tribute to the undersung B. Benaderet. That's on the town. And also B. Benaderet's film debut, Jethro's mom, uh, Tweety's granny. You done? Yes. Okay, so... Kate Bradley, Mrs. Barney Rubble. Thanks for the champagne. No, 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 wait, wait. He won't say another word, please. So, yes, that was B. Benaderet, who was doing Granny. Later, she was done by June Foray, but B. Benaderet is the one who originated that voice. And B. Benaderet was Betty Rubble. B. Benaderet was, for those of you who know your Looney Tunes to a certain extent, the cute Bobby Soxer teenager in Little Red Riding Rabbit who sings, the five o'clock whistles on the brink. That was B. Benaderet. She was incredibly versatile. Those of you who are really of a certain age, like of a very certain age, will remember the Burns and Allen sitcom. B. Benaderet was Blanche Morton. I want to share a little something about B. Benadere. This doesn't really fit into anything, but I've got to get this on record. 
There is a Looney Tune called A Hair Grows in Manhattan, where at the beginning, there is a Hollywood gossip writer. She's clearly modeled on Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, who wants to interview Bugs Bunny. And listen to what she says. Our little magazine would just adore to publish your biography. So give out, Bugs. Well, Lolly, you know how I hate to talk about myself, but uh, leave us turn back. So, hear that? Biography. (laughs) Biography. You think that she is, because this is B. Benaderet doing that voice, she is saying biography in a self-consciously pretentious way. That's what anybody thought watching that cartoon as it was stripped on UHF back in the 70s and 80s. You thought, "Mm, biography, Mm," was a little joke. But no, there's more, because, and now we have to really dig in the crates. The old radio show, The Great Gildersleeve, I've played some of that on the show before. Well, actually, B. Benaderet played a running part in that show, if you listen to the whole run, which of course I have. And she played the rather staid school principal, Eve Goodwin. B. Benadert was very versatile, and Eve Goodwin is just this kind of sober school principal. Now, listen to her in one episode from 1947, when she's talking to the protagonist of the show, Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve, about a book that he's reading. I must say, Throckmorton, I'm a little surprised to find you at the library. Oh, why should you be? Oh, come now. And that book you were after, biography, what's come over you? Well, it's a long story, Eve. If you're not doing anything... I'd love to hear about it. Notice that. She says, quite straight, a biography. That's how B. Benaderet said biography. The only reason could possibly be that that was an idiosyncratic pronunciation of hers. So, in A Hair Grows in Manhattan, she's doing this Lolly Parsons person, and she says, "Mm, biography, and you think that biography is part of the joke. But no, that's what that person said in real life, because Eve Goodwin, this sober school principal, is not silly. She's supposed to be one of the straight men, so to speak, of the show. And yet she says a biography. So what this means is that, you know, sometimes people just say things funny. You never know how that's going to go. My mother, actually, for reasons that will go ever unrecorded, because we can't ask her now, she said nerfery and grocery instead of nursery and grocery. It had nothing to do. She did not wear dentures. It wasn't anything like that. My mother grew up in the deep black south of the 1940s and 50s. That is not the way other people she grew up around say nursery and grocery. And my mother was a very crisply articulate person. But for some reason, on those two words, Nerfery, Grofery. As I grew up, I slowly realized that most people don't say Nerfery and Grofery. That was just one of her things. Well, with B. Benaderet, it was biography. That's just the way she said it. Maybe other people say it that way. I'd be interested to know if they did, but she said it that way. I mean, I know somebody who, who says war instead of were and actually expects to be taken seriously, so you never know. In any case, since we're on this Raymond Scott theme. Here is another one of his compositions, and this time, this version, this orchestral version, is the only one that exists of something that he must have written for a smaller ensemble. This is Mexican Jumping Bean. It makes me so happy. When I first moved to New York, when I finally had my first apartment in 2002 in some kind of sensible shape, the first thing I played was Mexican Jumping Bean, and to the extent that I can with my staid self, I jumped around listening to Mexican Jumping Bean. Here it is. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. By the way, the voice actor history 
of Little Sniffles the Mouse is massively complex, and I'm not going to drag you into those weeds, but in Hush My Mouse, he was voiced by Sarah Berner. She is as undersung as B. Benaderet. B. Benaderet makes her first film appearance in On the Town, as Archer tells us before the clip that I gave. But you can see Sarah Berner. She is the woman with her husband sleeping on the fire escape in the Alfred Hitchcock classic and one of my top 10 movies of all time, Rear Window. Sarah Berner, unsung artist extraordinaire. That was her doing sniffles. In any case, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McGuire.